Um, lovely to be here. Thank you so much for the introduction. Um, and thanks also for the invitation to come and speak with you lovely people tonight. Um, just a little bit more uh, background information about me, just so that you can get to know this random guy a little more. Um, firstly, I'm 43 years old, but I moisturize this frantically, so hopefully I look a bit younger. Um, why are you laughing? Um, I work part-time, as, as I said, in, in the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics, which is often abbreviated to the OCA because, frankly, it's a bit of a mouthful. Before I started exploring Christianity for myself, I hadn't really understood what Christian apologetics actually meant. I imagined, I think, it involved Christians going around to each other apologizing and kind of saying, I'm terribly sorry, I'm a Christian. <laughs> um, but in fact, it couldn't be any further from the truth um, because I'm not sorry I'm a Christian at all. In fact, um, Jesus transformed my life powerfully when I was 30 years old, um, and I am so grateful to everything um, that he's done in my life. But I completely accept that if you're exploring faith um, for the, the first time, or um, you have faith in God, but you're asking lots of questions, there are tons of really great legitimate questions that people are asking about God and faith and life. And uh, that's what we love to help people think about at the OCA. Um, I will have a QR code on my laptop at the end, so if you like any more information, please come and just um, uh, uh, grab the QR code, um, and that will take you to the website, which will um, introduce you to a whole new world of Ocker. Um, uh, as Dan said, I'm also a part-time medical doctor. Um, I've been uh, in that profession for over 20 years now, um, and a consultant in intensive care medicine and anaesthetics uh, for eight years. Um, I went from full-time to part-time practice in 2022 in order to start working at the Ocker. And uh, finally, at the moment, I'm also doing some additional study in philosophy, theology, and ethics at the University of Oxford. So I think it's fair to say my life is full. Um, I don't have a partner or kids, um, and I would say I'm pretty content with the life that God has given me. Um, however, I do have six godchildren, and although it's an absolute pleasure to be a godfather to them, man, it is an expensive business. Um, nobody tells you that when you sign up, do they? Blimey. Anyway, it is a real privilege uh, to be with you all today um, as we get together to process one of life's most enduring and difficult topics. Indeed, Christians have tried to grapple with this for the last two millennia, and that is the problem of suffering, where a supposedly good God meets a suffering world. And we only need to take a quick glance at what's being reported in the news and social media, uh, war, famine, sickness, betrayal, murder, rape, and suicide. The things that our world faces and we face on a daily basis to start to make us maybe doubt the presence of an all-good, all-powerful, and all-loving God. So this is the question we're going to look at today. Does God care about our suffering? And I'm very aware that for many of us in the room, this is an intensely personal and maybe current topic. And if you're not going through personal suffering, then I imagine it's likely that at least some of your friends or family are struggling in one way or another at the moment. And if you think you've never suffered anything at all, firstly, wow, that's amazing. And secondly, I'm about to change that because you're going to be listening to me for the next 25 minutes and people tell me that's a fairly horrendous experience. So um, I apologize in advance. I encountered suffering very young in life. 
Um, when she was 19 years old, my mum was diagnosed with a condition called rheumatoid arthritis. And for those who don't know what that is, um, it's an illness where a person's immune system uh, gets confused and starts to attack and destroy the inner lining of the majority of the joints in the body. And mum had this disease very badly uh, for approximately 35 years um, when research into the drugs and the disease was relatively new and very few of the medications that she had actually worked. In fact, the joint destruction was so severe for her that she had two total hip replacements within six months of her diagnosis. And she describes this illness as ha like having a severe flu all the time. And so along with my dad and grandparents, um, I became a carer for mum at an early age. Um, she would regularly go into hospital for yet another attempt at stabilization of her illness or for a joint replacement surgery. So for my earliest years, I had a front row ticket into mum's constant physical and mental suffering, as well as all the wider effects that it had on our family. In fact, I remember telling me that during my birth at Southampton General Hospital, um, I was delivered via forceps. And sorry, this is getting too much information and I'm oversharing, but remember that mum had two replacement hips at the time and uh, she couldn't have an epidural um, because of the drugs that she was taking for her, for her illness. But the really interesting thing, I think, was her comment that during the birthing process, um, it was excruciatingly painful, but she didn't mind it because she got something worthwhile at the end. Me, ta-da! Um, although uh, maybe she's changed her mind on that subsequently, I don't know and I haven't asked. But what she said was that it really got to her is the chronic nature of her illness, the pain, the stiffness, and the feeling so unwell day in, day out, that all just seemed totally meaningless. It seemed to have no function at all. So as I mentioned earlier, I've subsequently gone on to train as a doctor, and in my career, I have seen more suffering firsthand than I ever cared to imagine. So in what kind of world does this stuff happen where there is allegedly a good God and loving God who has a wonderful plan for our life? Because all, all this stuff that I've been talking about, and I'm sure you have your own stories too, doesn't sound like a wonderful plan to me. And so as a young child, I unknowingly stumbled upon one of the most enduring objections to Christianity, the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. And if you trace it back in history, it wasn't first posed to Christians. It was first posed to the ancient Greeks uh, about their gods by the Greek philosopher Epicurus. And his argument ran something along these lines, and I paraphrase. If God is all-powerful, but not willing to prevent evil, then he's not really all-loving. If he's willing to prevent evil, but not able to do it, well, then he's not really all-powerful. If he's both able and willing, well, why is there suffering? And if he's neither able nor willing, then why would we even call him God? He's just clearly a joker. And you may have seen modern-day variants of this argument posted on memes and in social media. Um, for example, a few years ago, I don't know if anyone saw it, but Stephen Fry gave an interview where he spoke about bone cancer in children and parasites that burrow into people's eyes and how these things cannot possibly be consistent with an all-powerful, all-loving God. And the rhetoric of an argument like this can be very persuasive. And for many people facing evil and suffering, when they look at the world, they survey at their own life, they tend to run away from belief in God. And that was the path that I took as a young lad. In retrospect, I subconsciously distanced myself from God, 
from church and from Christianity because it just didn't make sense. It didn't resonate with me. And for many in our culture, as soon as you experience the disappointment and the pain of the suffering, you tend to to run towards some kind of secular way of making sense of life, thinking that somehow that will solve the problem. But the problem of evil is not just a problem that faces Christians. You see, everyone has to make sense of evil and suffering somehow. And if you give up on God and run in some other different direction, in my view, the problem only gets worse. For example, I've heard some atheists state that given the evil and suffering in the world, Christians should give up on this ridiculous belief of a loving Heavenly Father who cares about us. But think about the very thing that would drive you to that conclusion. I'm going to speak for myself, but I'm pretty confident you'll agree that when we come face to face with our own personal suffering, or that in our family, and the suffering we see in the news, there is something in that experience that just feels wrong on a very deep level. It's just not the way that things should be. And particularly when we witness evil being perpetrated, we feel that the people or persons involved should be accountable. They should be stopped. But if atheism is true, then this deep sense of evil and the wrongness of suffering just doesn't really make sense. You see, if God doesn't exist, then good and evil are just human constructs. We no longer have a way to be able to distinguish between what is good and what is bad. Because the only way to define something is what is objectively good or objectively bad is to have some kind of objective moral law, which arguably requires an objective moral lawgiver who lays out the law and is uninfluenced by human opinion. In fact, the atheist Frederick Nietzsche openly admitted this when he said, as soon as you get rid of God, then good and evil and morality itself is is now just either individually determined, where a person does what's right in their own eyes, or it's socially determined, where a group of people comes up with a view of what they think is good. And that's called social contract theory. But that individual group's moral opinion may well differ to that in another group. So if this is true, then the nature of evil is nothing more than just personal or social preference in a given people group, and this could easily change over time and differ between cultures. And as my friend Dan observed, some cultures say, love your neighbor. Other cultures say, eat your neighbor. So which human beings are able to ultimately say which one is right and which one is wrong? It's just a matter of personal or social preference, isn't it? But if you're anything like me, you'll agree that things such as rape, sex trafficking, modern-day slavery, ethnic cleansing, and I could go on, are always wrong regardless of who in the world might argue that they're okay. What I'm trying to point out is that this deep feeling that evil and suffering are wrong is something that actually doesn't point away from God, but points to the existence of a universal moral lawgiver who's made us as moral beings in his image with a deep aversion to evil and pain. But if atheism is true, then there has never been some perfect world from which we've fallen. The world, frankly, has always been this way. Raping, pillaging, the strong preying upon the weak, sickness, death, suffering, it's just the norm. So why would we come to this deep-seated intuition that suffering has wrong? There has to be some fall from a better place. 
when I became a Christian 13 years ago, I came to discover that this innate reaction to evil and suffering that we have is something that actually tends to make sense within the Christian worldview, because when it comes to facing this issue, Christianity has a lot to say on the matter. As you may know, uh, the Bible begins with the story of creation, that God, uh, eternal community of Father, Son, and Spirit, out of an overflow of love and of his own free desire to create the universe and human beings in his own image. But because us human beings are designed to be like God, to love God, to love one another, and to care for the planet, it means that we have to have significant moral freedom. I'll give you an example. Imagine you're watching a film, which is supposed to be a beautiful love story between a man and a woman. But actually, it becomes clear that the woman doesn't want to be in relationship with the man at all. In fact, she can't leave the relationship. Indeed, when he finally proposes marriage to her, he does it by putting a gun to her head and yells, marry me or I'll shoot you. As tears of sadness run down her face as she mutters, I do, would you have warm, fuzzy feelings that you are witnessing a truly loving relationship? Hopefully, you can see from this that we intuitively recognize that if love is anything, it has to be freely given. It cannot be coerced. And if human beings would bear God's image and have relationship with him and with one another, for us to be capable of love, we have to be significantly free to choose either to receive it and respond to God's love or to reject it with all the consequences that come with it. Uh, there's a philosopher with a really great name. Are you ready? It's Alvin Plantinga. Amazing. He has written on this exact point, describing it as a death knell to what we would call the intellectual problem of evil. No mainstream atheist philosopher, as I understand it, will say that evil disproves God because of this free will understanding and explanation of how a good and powerful God would allow suffering. Why? Because God is himself a loving relationship, and he wants to have that loving relationship with each of us. And without that freedom we could use to do evil, those freely chosen loving relationships would simply not be possible. So we may have answered how God can be true, good, and loving whilst evil exists, but that doesn't answer our why questions. Why did he let this particular thing happen? Why doesn't he do something about it now? Because if he could intervene, he could have cured my mum like that, for example. And I'm sure many of us in this room have thought about these questions at some point in life. Maybe some of you are asking them right now. In fact, why isn't this talk shorter? When will it end, Lord, you may be asking. Maybe part of the answer lies in what is thought to be the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job. And I recommend that if you haven't read it, read it that you do read it, um, because it gives some really helpful insights into our suffering and God's interactions with us. For those who aren't familiar with the story, uh, you have this relatively good guy who loves God and is trying to be faithful and to honor him. And he's trying to do right by his family and by everyone else in his life. But then everything, pretty much everything, in his world falls apart. His kids were killed by a collapsing house. Then all of his wealth that was wrapped up in livestock was taken from him, either by natural disaster or by thieves. Then his wife turned on him. She told him to curse God and die. And then just as if the only thing he had left was his health, 
he ends up developing a terrible skin disease, leaving him sitting in the dust of his former house, crushed by his kids, just scraping himself with shards of pottery. I warn you, it's not a comedy, and it definitely puts the story, uh, or definitely puts the suffering of the spots I had on my chin earlier this week well into perspective. But the story of Job speaks of untold suffering and devastation, and it all happened like that. A decent life ripped apart, and if you're anything like me, the question that you immediately ask as you read that is, why? Job was friends with a bunch of guys. Uh, they came and sat with him in the dirt after all this happened for seven days. And in my view, that was the best thing that they ever did. They said nothing. Just as an aside, if you have a friend or relative who's going through suffering, the best thing you can do is just be there with them. You don't have to say anything clever. But then they made the error of opening their mouths. Like many of us do in today's world, they believed in something similar to karma. Essentially, if you do good, you get good, and if you do bad, you get bad. Therefore, they concluded that since Job had been getting bad over and over again, it means that he must have done something bad. So they kept accusing him. What did you do? You must have angered God for this suffering to have come. And Job starts getting increasingly frustrated by this, and he starts thinking, I don't think I did anything bad. So he starts to question the goodness of God, too. And I think if we're honest, many of us will question consciously or unconsciously uh, that, uh, that God in that situation. I still do sometimes. But of course, the fault isn't with God. I'm going to suggest it's with our faulty thinking that if I do good and get bad, then what does that mean? Well, then God must either be bad or totally impotent to act justly, or maybe he just doesn't even exist. One of the major take-home points of the book of Job is to help us realize that this isn't how God operates. We live in a broken world that's corrupted by the presence of evil and suffering. And so it comes, and we're not necessarily going to be able to discern why. You see, one of the biggest things you can do when it comes to experiencing evil and suffering is to lean in to the bigness of God. And when it gets to the book of Job, chapter 38, finally Job demands an audience with God, and God turns up. And God speaks his mind. He asks Job a series of questions. Where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? Tell me if you know. Where were you when I stretched out the heavens, O you who have knowledge? And question after question after question, God is probing Job about the bigness of the universe that God governs and upholds constantly. And Job begins to realize that compared to an infinite and all-wise God, he knows about this much. Interestingly, God never actually answers Job's why questions. God, why are you allowing all these terrible things to happen to me? But God says, I'm too big for you to understand it. My ways are above your ways as my thoughts are above your thoughts. As I mentioned earlier, I've worked for many years as an anaesthetist. It's the thing that the word that no one can ever say, anaesthetist, um, in operating theatres, both for adults and for children. Um, and ideally, before commencing a general anaesthetic, um, we like to have a cannula in situ, um, which is the little device that sits in the vein and allows us to deliver drugs and fluids and everything that is needed for both the anaesthetic and the surgery. Now, of course, this isn't popular uh, with anyone, but particularly not with kids, as you can imagine. 
and many a time when I'm needing to anesthetize a young child, I've set up the situation with the parent where they'll distract their kid with cuddles and books and games and songs from the shows and various different things, whilst I find an appropriate vein in the child's hand and insert the cannula. Now, we do have many strategies to try and minimize the pain of this, but it's not always possible to make it painless. And on the occasions where it hurts, you'll often just see the kids' eyes fill with tears as they look up at their mum or dad with what seems to be a mixture of pain, fear, confusion, and betrayal. How could you do this? I thought you loved me. You have the power to stop this, and you haven't. Over many years of doing this, two thoughts have occurred to me. Firstly, particularly with a young child, there is really no way that we can meaningfully explain to them how a greater good is served by us allowing a momentary period of suffering. And as the parents and the medical team for that child, our hope is that the surgery will be beneficial for them and leave them in a healthier place than they were before. But a child can't necessarily see that. And I realize that that's exactly where we are in the story of Job and exactly where we are with God. As we read in the first part, or we read in the first part of chapter one, there are things occurring in the spiritual realm that we simply aren't aware of. And so pain and suffering happens for a number of reasons, and we won't always know why. And we need to be honest about the mystery here. But from our limited understanding of the universe and beyond, there's no way I can make sense of why God allows some things to happen to us. But he is an infinite and all-wise being who not only sees what's happening in this moment, but he also sees the cause and effect of every relationship and action as it ripples down not just through this life, but through eternity as well. Only God is in the position of knowing whether he has good reasons to allow the kind of things to happen that happen to us. He is infinitely bigger and more knowledgeable than we are, and it comes down to a question simply of whether we trust him or not. Do you trust him with every part of your life? Do you know him well enough to do that? And I'm preaching to myself in that too. My second insight from the cannula in the child scenario is this. What that child will never see is that once they are under the anaesthetic, their parents will often burst into tears before leaving the room. I think there are many reasons for that reaction, but time and time again, I hear from those parents afterwards in those tearful moments that they cannot bear to leave their child and they cannot bear to see them suffer. And this brings me to our main question. How does God feel about our suffering? Well, in all honesty, the Bible is full of examples of God seeing the suffering of his people and having love and compassion on them. It is true that sometimes he has allowed his people to suffer when they were persistently trying to do things their own way rather than following God's call on their lives. But even in these situations, you can almost always see how he was allowing those things to happen so that they would see the error of, his, of their ways and turn back to him. And just to reiterate, we also know that by no means is all suffering a punishment from God. Take a look at the book of John, chapter 9, if you would like to see some evidence of this. But to answer this question on how God feels about our suffering more fully, we really need to look at the biographies of Jesus. In John's account of Jesus, in chapter 11, he tells the story of one of Jesus' friends, Lazarus. 
he dies. Jesus could have gone to heal him, but he chose not to. He lets him die. Already I'm feeling pretty mistrustful of this Jesus guy. Some friend he is. But the story goes on. And as Jesus finally comes to visit Lazarus' family, he, comes, uh, he sees uh, his sisters, Mary and Martha, um, and they each come out from the grieving home, and they speak with Jesus. And uh, Lazarus has been dead at this point for four days. Jesus is fully aware of what he's about to do. He's about to say to a dead guy to get up, having been dead for four days. And let's just be clear on this one again, a bit of excessive detail coming up. Lazarus wasn't just dead. The decomposition of his body had already started. In the King James Version of the Bible, it says, he stinketh. (laughs) Jesus was about to perform this amazing supernatural miracle, and yet when he sees the grieving of Mary and Martha, we gain one of the most amazing insights into the heart of God. John chapter 11, verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible says two words. Jesus wept. He began to sob over the death of his friend and the suffering of his sisters. And as he enters into the pain and the grief, it is there that we begin to see how utterly gutted Jesus is when he enters and encounters our suffering, our mess, and our death. But sadness isn't Jesus' only feeling in this situation. When he's talking to Mary and Martha, we see that he's angered by Lazarus' death. You see, atheism tells us that suffering, sickness, and death are just a normal part of living in this universe, simply a brute fact that we have to put up with. Nothing is going wrong as such. It's just the luck of the draw. But Jesus treats suffering and sickness and death as enemies of humanity. If you continue reading the story, it says that Jesus was deeply moved in the spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, um, but I've listened to people who know a fair bit about this, including Tim Keller, and they reliably tell me that the phrase greatly distressed or deeply moved are not easily translated into English. Perhaps a more honest translation would be greatly angered. Many ancient languages carry imagery behind the words that we really don't pick up anywhere near as well in the English translations. And I'm told that the, uh, the language that stands behind this term is what might be described as a bull snorting its nostrils. I'm going to do an impression. Ready? Jesus is enraged at the reality of death that has now swallowed up his friend, and he is going to make war on it. And this is what we see and hear about Jesus through the Gospels. He makes war on suffering and sickness and death and doesn't just say, get comfortable. He says, these are the results of an evil that are infecting the world and one day I'm going to get rid of them for good. In fact, as he's speaking to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me, will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus brings up the fact that through his own resurrection from the dead that was about to come, this is how he is going to deal with the rest of our suffering and death as well. 
The Christian story does not say that you're going to suffer, but one day you'll be annihilated, and then you won't exist anymore, so don't worry about your suffering too much. It will come to an end because you'll be dead. The Christian story gives this profound future hope that is anchored in the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. And for those of us who choose to follow Jesus and give our lives to him, it is a very real hope of eternity that is going to swallow up and stop whatever momentary pain you're experiencing now and in the future forever. It's good news, right? But even in the midst of promising that one day it will come to an end, God dignifies our suffering by saying that it still serves a purpose. That there is a reason why he allows us to go through this momentary suffering, even when it seems meaningless to us. Believe me, for anyone who deals with chronic, physical or mental illness, it doesn't feel momentary, does it? It feels constant. Jesus doesn't just wish it away, a trite and irritating, get well soon but one day it will be gone and everything will be great. What he also promises is that when we run to him and give him our whole lives, including our suffering, he can work in everything for our good. Not necessarily our physical comfort, our healing, or our long life, but he can work out his purposes even in our weakness and our brokenness. And I admit, Uh, That too many times when bad things have happened to me, I get angry and confused. I push God away and people away. And as a result, that can lead to bitterness rather than a softness, a compassion, a humility and empathy. And so whether or not we trust God in the midst of our brokenness determines whether or not our suffering will destroy us or whether in God's hands it can become something that he can use to make us more like Jesus. We see in the Bible that this side of heaven, the end goal of our life on earth is holiness. It's not necessarily happiness. Yes, there may well be times of great happiness, and that is awesome. But holiness is what God desires for us, and sometimes suffering is the tool that he uses to bring his purposes about. But you might say, okay, thanks very much. So he sits there on his mighty throne whilst occasionally bringing his purposes about through our suffering. Well, maybe he should have a taste of his own medicine. Why doesn't he roll his sleeves up and do something about it? And of course, the answer to that is that it's exactly what he has done and more. Does God care about our suffering? Yes. How do I know? Well, he has his own scars. He is right there in the suffering with us. And he suffered horrendously for us for you. When I came across the account of Jesus dying on a cross, of God being beaten and crucified, having been rejected, spat upon, driven all by his life, by his love for us to pay the death penalty that we deserve, I realized that when I suffer, it can't mean that God doesn't love me. God proved once and for all that he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to suffer and die in our place. It's all summarized in one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16. So whenever you're feeling down, struggling where God is in the midst of all this apparent meaningless pain and suffering, remember the cross. Be reminded of the love of God for us 
and his ability to take even the worst kinds of suffering and evil and turn them around for good. In the last pages of the Gospel of John, he documents the story where Jesus appears to a group of his scared disciples in a locked upper room after his resurrection and rising from the dead. They were unsure about what Jesus' death meant and this report that his tomb was now empty. So he appeared to them, and in the account it says he reached out his hands and pointed out the scars of the cross. And he said, peace be upon you. As the Father has sent me, now I send you. The God who I believe in, this Savior who I trust, he is a wounded healer. He is a God with scars. And he literally knows and has experienced your pain because on the cross, he took all the pain of our sin and brokenness on himself. So often, when I personally suffer or see someone I love suffering, my reflex is to try and take matters into my own hands and attempt to get rid of the situation without even consulting God. And for sure, God is a healer and restorer, and he calls us to work with him to help reduce the suffering in this world and, and the pain of those around us. But God doesn't guarantee that we won't suffer this side of heaven. What he does guarantee is that he will be with us in our suffering, and together with us, he'll help us to navigate it. And sometime in the future, as we're told in Revelation chapter 21, Jesus will return. He will wipe every tear from our eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. In conclusion then, does God care about our suffering? Yes, absolutely. It makes him angry, it makes him weep, and it's led him to do something about it. He sent his only son, Jesus, into our mess and pain and lostness to die for it all and to ultimately bring an end date to death and suffering altogether. And the personal invitation of Jesus is simple. If you're hurting, if you're suffering, if come to him. Cry out to him. He's big enough to take your questions. He's big enough to take your anger. He's big enough to take your confusion and your not knowing. But don't keep him at arm's length. Come and encounter the living Jesus, our wounded healer who is able to fill your life with hope and meaning and purpose, irrespective of what you're facing. Should we pray together? Father God, we thank you that you are with us. Lord, we don't understand what goes on in our lives, but Lord, we ask that you would help us to trust you as a loving Heavenly Father, and we thank you that you have died for everything that is bad and evil in this world, and that you will bring things to a just conclusion, and that you will end pain and suffering in the end. Lord, would you help us to grieve with you, and Lord, would you help us to welcome you into the deepest, darkest, most painful parts of our lives, and see you transform us into who you have called us to be. Lord, help us to be real and honest with you, and to do this in relationship with you, rather than in anger and bitterness at you, Lord. Thank you that you can take all our emotions and that you love um, to be in this with us as you bring um, evil and death to its conclusion. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>